We continue reading from the book of Genesis this morning, chapter 2, verses 4 through 14, as we prepare to hear the Word of God, let us seek the Lord's blessing, let us pray as we sing. Fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us hear the word of God. It is written These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man, no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. There he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And to his name be all praise, honor, and glory. Amen. 
Having made our way through Genesis 1 and now into Genesis 2, you may perhaps wonder what the connection between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is. What we have here are not two different creation accounts, but we have in Genesis 1 what we might call a panoramic or wide-angle overview of God's work of creation. And then in Genesis 2 now, we have what we might call a zoom lens, telescopic lens, focusing primarily upon the creation of the first man. You know how it is when you go to the movie theater, I still refer to it as the picture show, you know, and if it's um, one of these great classic westerns, you know how it begins with that great panoramic panoramic scene of uh, the snow-capped Rocky Mountains or the Grand Tetons, and it's accompanied by this great overture with a trumpet peals and clashing cymbals and timpani drums, you know, or you have this great scene of the prairie with 10,000 bison storming across the horizon, you know, and you know that, you know, right where you are, you're, you're, in, a, you're in a big land with big mountains under a big sky, and you're getting ready for a big adventure. And then as that great overture fades away and the wide-angle panoramic view shifts and it comes down and it's that telescopic zoom lens focusing in on a man riding a horse. And you know, keep your eye on that guy, right? Well, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 work that way. Now, please understand, and this is being recorded, it's going on the internet. I'm not likening the Holy Scripture to a fictional Western, all right? But what I am trying to do, the Scripture is not fictional. But it's giving us two different perspectives. And so now in Genesis 2, it's calling us to focus on particularly the creation of the man, that is to say the male creature, and his placement in the special area known as the Garden of Eden. You understand that the whole world was not the Garden of Eden. God created the heavens and the earth, and at a particular place on the earth was Eden, and in Eden there was this particular garden. But what is this, what does this shift do for us in terms of our understanding of God? Well, let's go back briefly to Genesis One, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God said, let there be light, and there was light. There was evening and morning the first day, and God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them, 
and it was so. In the same way that Genesis 1 gives us that wide-angle, big-picture of creation, it it gives us a wide-angle, big-picture of God the Creator. Genesis 1 reveals to us, if you will, if I could put it like this, the bigness of God, the, the greatness of God, the highness and holiness of God, the Creator who is over and above and beyond His creation, the Creator who is other than His creation, who, as the prophet Isaiah said, sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. So if I can put it like this, Genesis 1 reveals the Godness of God. The transcendent, awesome being of God. And that grand musical overture which we hear when we read Genesis 1 includes the sound of angels singing around the eternal throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Genesis 1 is grand. It tells us of the infinite greatness and transcendent glory of God and gives us the big picture, that wide-angle panoramic perspective on God and His work of creation. But you know, in Genesis 1, if you think about it, and if Genesis 1 were all that you had and you didn't know anything else, you never read any more of the Bible, if all you had were Genesis 1... You wouldn't really know whether, does God, does God, does God care? Does God communicate? Uh, is He simply the holy transcendent one? There's not a lot of intimacy between God and the creation in Genesis 1, right? Because that's not what it's intending to teach. It's intending to teach the bigness, the greatness, the godness of God. But the shift comes at Genesis 2. The wide angle becomes a zoom lens, a telescopic lens. It focuses in and and it shows us the nearness of God, the immanence, immanence, that means the with us-ness of God. I just made that word up, the with (laughs) us-ness. That's a good word, I like that. With us-ness of God. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, 2.5 says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Scholars, different scholars deal with this verse differently, but it's agreed that verse 5 does not, does not, does not mean that there was no plant life on earth prior to the creation of man on the sixth day. It can't mean that because Genesis 1.11 tells us that God created vegetation, plants, and trees on the third day. But the Hebrew word for bush in verse 5 refers most commonly to inedible growth what you might call weeds, thorns, and thistles, and we know that they did not appear on the earth until after Adam's sin. 
And the Hebrew word for small plant of the field in verse 5 refers primarily to cultivated crops. So here's the situation. Um, there's, There's no cultivation of crops because... God had not yet given rain on the one hand. On the other hand, there wasn't any man to work the ground. And so the land was not fulfilling its potential of producing even more life-sustaining food because there was no man to work on the ground. That that verse is setting us up for what's coming. There's a problem here. There was no man to work the ground. That gets us now to the sixth day and the creation of the man. But, but pay close attention now to this telescopic zoom lens of God's, on God's work of creating the first man. Let's don't, let's don't take this for granted. Let's don't, you know, let's don't just blow by this or breeze by it. Remember in Genesis 1, uh, when on the fifth day of creation, God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth. You know, there's no account of God having created a particular fish or a whale or a bird. He called all of these in general into existence by the power of His Word. Likewise, on the sixth day prior to the creation of the human creatures, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And it was so. Again, there's no mention of God's having specifically created a a particular deer or wolf or elephant or earthworm. He spoke the creatures in general into existence by the power of His Word. And the emphasis there is on the power of His Word, God's sovereign power. He speaks and it is done and it was so. That's where the emphasis is, not on the how and, you know, et cetera, the mechanics of it. But you see, when we get to the creation of humanity in, in Genesis 1.26, even though God says, let us make humanity in our image, still there we don't, even, we don't see much of God's personal attention or activity in the creation of humanity. It is true that it says specifically in the image of God, He created Him, male and female, He created them. But there's still a seeming distance between God and His human creature. And it is as though the point of Genesis 1.26 and following is on the creation of humanity in general, the creation of the human creatures and their posterity to follow. Genesis 1 doesn't portray much personal intimacy between God and humanity. That's not its point. But Genesis 2 gives us a zoom lens, telescopic perspective. You know, the great overture music, it sort of fades away. The scene shifts. It's telling us something about our Creator and our relationship with Him. In Genesis 2, God is very, very near. In Genesis 2, God is personally involved. In Genesis 2, God has, has as it were, so to speak, or in some way literally, come down from heaven to earth. Verse 7 says, 
Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. A very specific act of creation. A very deliberate act of creation. The first man. Also, pay attention to the fact that in Genesis 2, the Creator is referred to as the Lord God. If you have your Bible open, hope you do, you can see that in verse 5, there's the reference to the Lord God. In verse 7, there is the reference to the Lord God. In verse 8, there is the reference to the Lord God. In verse 9, there is the reference to the Lord God. That title, that name does not occur in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, God's name, God is referred to as God. The Hebrew Elohim, translated G-O-D in English, generic rather generic title, generic name for the supreme creator. But in Genesis 2 now, Moses uses the personal covenant name of God as he revealed himself, revealed his name to Moses. Yahweh. Now, this is indicated in the English translation by the word Lord in all capital letters. So if you've got your Bible open, you'll see the word Lord in all capitals. And whenever you see the word Lord in all capitals, it indicates the Hebrew word Yahweh. The personal name of God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. I am that I am. And therefore, the revealing of this personal name of God was a sign to Moses and to the Israelites, you see, that the Creator God was not an impersonal or unknown God or an unknowable God or a distant, detached deity, but a God of personal, covenantal relationship. The God who was with them. The God who was for them. The God who had been there in the beginning and formed the first man. You remember when God spoke the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, He began by saying, I am the Lord, Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So, if, if we think about the original historical context and the original audience of Genesis, namely the ancient Israelites in the time of Moses after the Exodus, we can see now that Moses was teaching the ancient Israelites and us that the almighty creator of heaven and earth, the transcendent one, the sovereign holy one is also was also their Redeemer. And our Redeemer involved in the matters of our earthly lives. The one who created humanity is the very one who 
is the one who brought Israel out of the slavery in Egypt. The Creator is the Redeemer. The Redeemer is the Creator. The Creator in Genesis 1, who might seem so very far away from us and aloof from His creation, is in fact the Redeemer who is very near and very active in the lives of His people. And so, having told us that the Creator is in fact the Lord Yahweh God, now with that telescopic zoom lens, Moses tells us something more. Genesis 2-7, again, speaking of God's nearness and with usness, His immanence with us, Genesis 2-7 portrays God as a potter. Think of it. Think about the Creator revealed to us in Genesis 1, now being portrayed as though having come down to earth, presumably kneeling down so as to scoop up a handful of mud out of which to fashion a man. It's quite a different perspective, isn't it? Now, we don't know exactly how this took place or what exactly it looked like. That's not the point. The inerrant Word of God is teaching us here the personal involvement, personal deliberation with which the Lord God formed the first Man, now perhaps God did appear in a theophany, that is the appearance of God in human form, which is recorded in a few other places in the Old Testament. Doesn't say that here, doesn't say that here. Perhaps, perhaps it did look like that. I mean, He did appear in the form of a man. Perhaps He did kneel down and scoop up the dust of the ground with His hand. We don't know. But the point here is that God did not merely speak humanity in general into existence. You know, let, let the water swarm. Let living creatures come forth. Oh, and, and let, let humans come. Just let, let's have a bunch of humans out here. Uh-uh. He made the man by means of a special act of creation, if you will, a personal hands-on work of creation with deliberate care and intentionality and personal intimacy. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground as a potter forms his vessel for his own specific purposes. In Genesis 2, we meet the personal Lord God who is eminent, near to his human creatures, especially his human ones, personally involved in their lives from the beginning, the one who enters into covenantal, interpersonal relationship with humanity. Now, this special act of creating the first man of dust from the ground has some special implications for us. First of all, the Hebrew word for human, 
Adam. That's why we then refer to this first man as having the name Adam. But the word in Hebrew, Adam, means human. It's a play on the Hebrew word for ground, Adama. Adam was made from the Adama. Earthlings are made from earth. Humans are made from humus. Right? That tells us who we are. Creatures of dust. (laughs) We are dirt. (laughs) We're dirt. John Calvin, in his sermon on this passage, said that Moses shows us here that by considering the material of which we were made, we have nothing to boast about or be proud of. For we are only dirt and mire when all is said and done. We always ought to consider our origin, so we will lower our eyes and walk in all humility confessing that we are only earth and dust, as the Scripture tells us so many times. Now, that's not meant to be degrading. That's not meant to be a a put-down of humanity or of, of our personal humanity. Calvin also well knew, and Calvin wrote beautifully on the dignity conferred upon humanity by being created in the image of God. But these these two points keep us in balance, don't they? On the one hand, we are image bearers of the Almighty Creator, put upon the earth to reflect His glory, to be His vice-regents. Kings and queens under the Almighty King of creation. But lest that go to our heads in sinful pride, we are reminded that we are creatures of dust. Now put that together. Walk around in it a little bit this week. Dignity and humility are not contradictory. Dignity and humility are not contradictory. True dignity is seen in true humility, and true humility carries with it a true dignity. True dignity is seen in true humility, and true humility carries with it a true dignity. And when you have a true dignity lived out in true humility, you have a true humanity. And does that remind you of anybody? Does that remind you of anybody? May it be the one to whom the Apostle Paul referred to as the second man, the last Adam, the true God, the true man, in perfect unity. Another thing we learn from the special creation of the man Adam is that the Bible teaches us to see it 
as the pattern of our own individual creation in our mother's womb. Let me repeat that. I I hope this is as powerful to you as it is to me. The Bible teaches us to see the special act of creation, God's creation of Adam, as the pattern, the lens through which we see our own individual creation in our mother's womb. And I get that from Psalm 139, in which David meditates on the mystery of his conception in this way. As he meditates on his life, as, he is, as David in Psalm 139 meditates on the nearness of God, the with usness of God, the intimacy of the relationship with God, David says, for you formed. There's, there it is. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wasn't that a, a fearful, that is to say an awesome, you know, if you could have, you could have been there. Of course, you couldn't be there because <laughs> there wasn't any other human. But if you could roll back the video and watch, woo, that was awesome, right? He took the mud and fashioned it and whoo, blew into the nostrils a breath of life. and The man became a living creature. Woo, that's awesome. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. The human body is a wonderful piece of work. My frame, Psalm 139, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Listen to those words as they echo the Lord God's making of Adam. You formed as a potter my inward parts. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. In Psalm 139, the mother's womb is referred to as the depths of the earth. The mother's body is like the earth, the dust out of which the Lord God formed Adam. And the Bible says that the Lord, like a potter, has formed each one of us specifically, particularly out of the dust of our mother's womb, just as really and truly as He formed Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This has all manner of applications and implications for us and for everyone. First of all, of course, it affirms the sanctity and dignity and intrinsic value of human life above all other creatures. It therefore condemns not only the abomination of abortion, but also all forms of abuse, and oppression and injustice toward other human beings whenever human beings are not regarded as having been formed by the Lord God as though they were beasts of the field or even worse, less. Therefore, it teaches us to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
But it also, dearly beloved, points to the miracle and the mystery of the Word. The Word made flesh. Adam was a man of dust. Now, there's a lot in this passage that you know is dropping a lot of uh, foreshadowings of things to come. The mention of the true trees, the tree of life, which will appear again in the New Testament in a couple of different ways. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which becomes a key in chapter 3. There's a lot still to come. Paradise, the man in paradise in plenty. We'll learn about why he was put there. We'll learn about what happened. Paradise lost. But for this morning, as we focus on the man of dust, and we know that he ultimately failed in his covenant relationship with the Lord, plunging himself and all humanity, you and me, under the sin, the curse of sin and death. The Lord God said to Adam when he pronounced judgment upon him for his sin, you are dust and to dust you shall return. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the first letter to the Corinthians tells us that though the first man was a man of dust, words of scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, a man of dust, and, and in, in union with Adam, we, we all are dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul then points us to the second man. That's what he, how he refers to Jesus. The, the second man, the second Adam. The last Adam. Now, it's not a chronological numbering, obviously. It, it means the... the, 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 the the, the, the true representative, the one and only true representative of humanity, Christ. The, the last Adam was a man from heaven. His, har- his origin was not originally from the dust of the ground. His origin is from eternity. He's the man of heaven, but he became a life-giving spirit. He became the one through whom we receive eternal life. And how did He do that? He did that by uniting Himself with us. With us, Ness. Emmanuel, God with us. He did that. Conceived by the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He took our dust upon Himself. Without sin. The man of heaven, now we see, yes, came down. Down into the depths of the earth. Into the womb of his human mother. Taking upon human nature without sin. What does the scripture say? He humbled himself. And became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, so that you and I might be redeemed from the curse. And God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. There is glorified dust in heaven, the body of our Lord Jesus. And therefore, in union with Christ, through faith in Christ, we too, our bodies of dust, shall be likewise raised and glorified on the day of resurrection 
paradise restored. And together with Christ and with all His redeemed people, true believers have the assurance of eternal life in that new creation. Paradise restored. The kingdom free from the curse of sin and death. In bodies of glorified dust which can never die. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, let us pray. Our Father, we rejoice in your word of truth, which is the word of life, the word which has come into this world in the flesh of Jesus. And we give you thanks, O Lord, that by his righteousness, His obedience, and Your grace and Your mercy, we, in union with Him, have the promise of everlasting life. We pray that Your Spirit will seal this Word upon our hearts and grant us grace to believe it, that we might live upon the earth as creatures who bring glory and honor to Your name, through Christ our Savior. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, please stand as we affirm our faith, saying together the Philippian Creed, based on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Christian, in whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.